0: Support for Great Minds is provided by The Wine Store, located at 1200 Central Avenue in Naples. The Wine Store offers a unique selection of wines from small production, artisan, and family-owned wineries. Their in-store wine education center hosts classes for the novice and connoisseur alike. Details are at thewinestorenaples.com. Welcome to Great Minds, the wine-centric podcast that looks beyond what is in the glass to the fascinating world of the people and the history and the culture that make it all happen.
1: I'm Gina Birch. And I'm Julie Glenn. We're fortunate to talk to a lot of winemakers and winery owners on our show. Not only do we have one of those people as our guest today, but she's also a scholar and an author who writes about history and culture, including wine. Mm
2: -hmm. Dr.
0: Tilar Mazzeo, Thank you for joining us today, Tilar.
2: Pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invite.
0: Um, You're an associate professor of English at Colby College in Maine, in Waterville, Maine, um, and the author of a number of best-selling books, including one that really caught our attention, and that's The Widow
2: Clicquot. That's right. Yes. But the next part of the story doesn't make any sense, does it? (laughs) No,
0: it doesn't. You know, I was listening to a presentation you gave at Cambridge. I did a little stalking online on you, stalking, and how you decided to write the book. And it started with drinking a lot of champagne with your girlfriends as a way to get through a cold winter while living in the Midwest. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I love this lady's style
2: already. (laughs) You you have gained our
0: respect for sure. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about that and how it all
2: came to be. Yeah. So I um, I grew up on the East Coast. I um, actually grew up in Maine. Mm-hmm. And when I was, the week I turned 21, I moved to Seattle. And that was where I did my graduate work. And um, I was really lucky to grow up, um, you know, in my 20s in Seattle, the 90s. It was a wonderful time to be in the city. Good for music, too. It was, too. Yeah, it no was kidding. great music. I, I, know. I, had a, I definitely had a misspent youth, I'm yeah. afraid. <laughs> um, But the part of my youth that was not misspent was that this was a a really exciting moment in the Washington State wine industry. I mean, I used to drink Leonetti as a graduate student, and I don't (laughs) think I can afford it any longer (laughs) as a professor. Wow. Um, So learned a ton about wine um, during that decade that I was in Seattle and was really, really interested in it. Then my first job um, out of graduate school as a professor was at Oregon State University right in the heart of Willamette, um, the Willamette mm. Valley. So continued to learn a lot about wine there. And then my next job was in Wisconsin. And although the people of Wisconsin were fabulous, the job was not a very good fit, mm. and the winters were cold, and there was no wine industry in Wisconsin. Wah, wah, wall. No, Saturdays. I know. Sorry. Cheese That's- and beer, baby. <laughs> <laughs> So I made the sensible decision that it was the time to begin studying French champagne seriously. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Perfect. Um, So I ended up having a couple of girlfriends. The Widow Clicquot is dedicated to them. We all agreed that the Widow Clicquot, that Veuve Clicquot was our favorite um, champagne. So it really started as a joke among girlfriends where, you know, we'd get together once a semester, we'd complain about our job, and we'd each bring a bottle of champagne, and then our husbands would drive us home afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) And um, it just started as a joke where I said one day, oh, you know, Veuve Clicquot means widow in French. I wonder if there really was a Widow Clicquot. And I was really lucky. I had girlfriends who, when I said, you know, someday I'm going to write that book, they're like, no, you need to write that book now. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I did. Um, I started looking into it. I um, ultimately was able to get access to the archives at Viv Clicquot and to tell the story of just a, a really amazing entrepreneur, but also a woman who transformed parts of the wine industry.
1: How hard was it to do that research? Did you learn French? I already knew
2: French. Oh, there you go. Um, that helped. Yeah, part of it is, you know, you grew up in Maine. The border is not very thick over here. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I already spoke French. Um, so that part wasn't difficult. But um, but the part that was hard was not getting the access. I got the access and went to France. It was really that the day that I arrived um, at the archives, which is this room full of, full of boxes and books. You know, I thought, oh, okay, you know, this is going to be really easy. Well, it turned out that, the problem is that for the widow, Clicquot, the parts of her life that she thought were important to save were, you know, every pound of grapes she bought and how much she paid for each parcel of land, all the oh. business records, but mm-hmm. not her own personal story. Oh, so you got all the accounting. Yeah, which wasn't really the story. I was yeah. And
0: were you at the winery itself where, where all of this stuff was kept?
2: That's right. Okay. That's right. Did
0: you get to drink the champagne while you were there doing your studies? (laughs) I
2: definitely did. We don't want to stint on my research, right? (laughs) No, you got to. Um,
1: So how did you find out more about her personal life and trials and tribulations? Uh, How did you get past that accounting?
2: Yeah. So um, the most important sources that I found is it turned out one of the things I hadn't understood until I started doing that biography was that um, by the end of her life in the in the latter part of the 19th century, she was one of the um, most famous tourist attractions in France. And so when we think about the rise of wine tourism, you know, mm-hmm. you know, going to Napa, going to Sonoma, and which is what I think the you know, the second largest tourist attraction after Disney and the eighth largest economy in the world, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, really important, really important cultural and economic um, um, factor for us. Um, She's really, along with Louise Pomeray, the person who pioneered what we now think of as wine country and wine tourism. So at the end of her life, she had become famous and I was able to find 19th century travel narratives um, of people going to France in order to visit the Widow Clicquot. She was known then as the Queen of France or um, the Grand Dame, which is why the champagne Champagne is named after Mm -hmm. that. Well,
1: it's interesting when you look at your body of work, you have um, travel narratives in another uh, book, right? Yeah, And then you also have the back roads of Napa and Sonoma as part of your work, too. So wine travel and travel writing and the study of that travel writing is, is an interesting thread that did that branch off after you started learning about the widow Clicquot and her influence on wine tourism? Or was that something that you already had an interest in?
2: Well, I think I already had an interest in it. I really got, I got very seriously interested in wine in those days in Washington state. And I think part of why I wanted to do the biography of the widow cookout was that I, you know, was really interested, especially in just the technical side. I mean, you know, riddling and what was her invention and how did she transform champagne from being what was really, you know, when she began in the industry, it was just a little known aristocratic product. And she's really the person who was responsible for making it a, you know, a kind of mass, mm-hmm. mass commodity luxury, if that makes any sense, you know, that, that, yes. that that dichotomy. Um, so, but the Back Lane Winery Guides, um, which happened really around the same time, were after the job in Wisconsin, um, uh, we, the next job that we got, my ex-husband, um, we were married then, we're divorced now, um, we moved to Sonoma County, California. Um, he got a job at Sonoma State University. So I found myself living um, in, you know, in paradise, in the heart mm-hmm. of the wine country, but noticing that when I first moved there, I mean, even as somebody who was a pretty experienced wine taster and you know, I mean, knew a fair amount, um, I would see these little signs at the end of dirt roads that said, open for wine tasting, and I'd be too chicken, if you know what I mean, mm-hmm. to go down the road just because there's that intimidation factor of, oh, my God, I'm going to meet a winemaker, and the winemaker is going to look at me and think I'm an idiot, right? <laughs> Welcome <laughs> to the wine world, be, yeah, right? Or the bottle, and this will just be really embarrassing. So what I wanted to do in those guides was um, write the guidebook that I wanted when I moved to Sonoma, and, and then later in Napa, which is, you know, the story of who are these people, the thing that would give you an idea of what was at the end of that dirt road so that you, you weren't too intimidated to go ahead and, and drive down. And in the process of doing that, I mean, I think there's maybe 70 wineries in each of those books. And I, if, I, you know, if, if something I didn't think would be a good experience, I didn't say anything negative, I just didn't include it. Right. But it meant that by the time I was done, I knew everybody in the wine industry, and they're just amazing people. Um, it that's was some really self-serving
1: weird. research that I have to respect as well <laughs> yes yes
2: exactly and yes. we all have that do imposter
1: do si- we, all, we also we all have that imposter syndrome where we think that we're not worthy of walking up to a winemaker
2: and being like hey let me try your stuff you know exactly I mean it's just it's intimidating I mean we don't I mean winemakers now you know ultimately I went and got this went to the, the certificate program in winemaking at UC Davis and you know went through that whole experience and like now being on the other side you know I can say like winemakers don't you know, winemakers are not pretentious people. I mean, you know, like we spend a lot of time like cleaning floors and cellars, you know, what I mean, like that's the reality. It's not, a, it's not sometimes as glamorous as it seems. And um, I don't think the winemakers have any intention of being intimidating. They're very down-to-earth people in my experience. But there's something about, you know, that gap between us, the consumer, and the winemaker, the person, where it seems really intimidating until you do it.
0: Well, you just opened another door here. I have so many other questions to ask you about the, the, the book and, um, and, and what you were just talking about. But you just said you crossed the line and now you are one of those winemakers. And I find that fascinating. Uh, was it something that when you were doing your research, you're like, I really want to do this now? Because most people would say no one in their right mind after doing all that research would dig in for the time, the effort, and the money to, to, to make wine. But you yeah. did. I did.
2: It's <laughs> one of those things where you know when the, the joke about how to make a small fortune in the wine industry is not actually a very funny joke <laughs> from the other side of it. It turns out, but um, but yeah. So um, for me, so after I wrote you know the Backlane winery guides and the widow Clicquot, the next thing I had done is I wrote a book. Or you may have noticed about the um, about. Perfume and about yeah, the Chanel. Chanel. Very and cool. that was completely connected to this interest in the wine industry because, you know, really, if you think about it, perfume is just aromatic volatiles and alcohol. It's just that, you know, if you drink that alcohol, you're going to end up with liver damage really quickly <laughs> instead of yeah. on the slow train. And um, but really there's I, so anyhow, I was able to get access and go to a perfume school during the period that I was writing and researching that book. And for me, that was the thing that really got me interested in going back and doing actually the certificate program in winemaking, because I learned so much about um, wine by studying perfume, right? I mean, Mm. like thinking about phenols and esters and aldehydes and, you know, what the kind of molecular structure of the things that we think of as the aromatics of wine, right, the bouquet. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, so it was a two-year program at Davis, and um, An incredibly interesting, very very hard. I mean, I hadn't taken organic chemistry in a long time. Oh, gosh, that just that gave me
0: that tough. just made me a little sick to my stomach. I'm remembering that.
2: Yeah. I'm a little yeah, cringy. I'm a little cringy over here. But
1: yeah. well, speaking about the winemaking, you mentioned earlier um, about riddling, and I wanted to have you reflect a little bit on the impact of
2: vive clicot and riddling. Yeah, I mean, riddling, I think probably, I mean, for one thing, it's still done, right? Mm -hmm. So the technique that she invented in terms of vintage champagnes is still the gold standard. I mean, you know, on on non-vintages, some of the big production houses now do things like gyro palettes and, you know, other things like that. But really, um, for the vintage handcrafted champagne, her process is still the standard process. And um, so... For any of your listeners who um, aren't remembering riddling, basically what happens is you, when you're making a sparkling wine, you take your still wine, you put it in a bottle, better be a bottle that can withstand a lot of pressure, yeah, otherwise glass, it will yeah. become a bomb, <laughs> um, and that's not that's not handy. No. Um, and then you put in yeast and a little bit of sugar, maybe some brandy, which has sugar in it, to start a secondary fermentation, and you close it up. And... Obviously, the yeast converts the sugar to CO2 and to alcohol, and then the problem that the widow Clicquot ran into is, okay, well, when that secondary fermentation is done, what you have are dead yeast cells Mm -hmm. in the bottom of your bottle. Now, a vintage champagne, you would let it rest surly, right, on the leaves Mm -hmm. for a long time because that gets that wonderful nutty brioche, you know, the autolysis, which is an enzymic reaction. So, but at the end, one way or the other, unless you want floaty bits in your sparkling wine, which nobody does, mm-hmm. um, you have to figure out a way to get them out. And the old method, um, before she invented riddling, was something called transvasage, which is just a really fancy French word for pouring the wine from one bottle to another. Mm. And as you can imagine, you, I mean, it leaves behind the sediment, but pouring your sparkling wine... From you lose off, the bubbles. Yeah, you lose the bubbles. It's mm. terrible for the quality of the wine.
1: And the oxygenation and everything.
2: Yeah. Oh, it's just, yeah, it ruins it, right? And so, um, and this was really the problem. So as a result, 18th century sparkling wine was much less um, sparkling, right? It was really more... <laughs> Fizzy. <technical. laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was just kind of a light fizz. And so she had the – and the the problem was it was also really slow and time-consuming, and you lost a lot of product. Mm. So at the moment of her kind of great triumph, right, she, you know, smuggles that 1811 vintage in and, like, captures the Russian market. And, you know, she beats her arch-rival Jean-Rémy Moet to market share, which is also a great part of the story, I always think. Um, after that, she ends up with this production log jam where she has people clamoring for her wine, but she can't get it to them because she's got this, she's got a bottleneck, haha in the <laughs> cellar. And so that's when she has the idea. She says, look, take my kitchen table down into the cellar and drill some holes in it. And like, how about we just turn them upside down? And like, then the yeast would be in the neck instead of in the bottle and we'll just open it and then the yeast will just fly out and we'll just, you know, close it back up. And all of the winemakers you know, at the time said, well, that's just crazy. We've never done it that way. And <laughs> Which is
1: a good like, reason to never try yeah. it. <laughs> it's always a good reason,
2: right? You know, there, is, there is something about the French, you know, the answer to everything. No, no. No, it's not done. So she just said, yeah, take it down there and do it. And, of course, it worked. And um, it was really the thing that more than anything, because it allowed champagne to still be an artisanal product, but something that could be produced more quickly, mm-hmm. um, it really was the thing that opened up champagne to this kind of, you know, world market in that way. Um, and so now when we see the riddling racks, all they are is the Widow Clico's table with some hinges in the middle. I love it. And that's just because it takes up less floor space. Right. That's, awesome.
1: that's what. What year was that when she decided, when she figured that out?
2: Let's see, that would have been right after 1814, so like 1814-15, okay. somewhere around, uh, I forget exactly the year, but it would have been immediately after the 1814 because that was the year that she had her great triumph with the, the Russian market.
0: And you said that this she was kind of the leader in, in uh, wine tourism. Were people coming to see the racks or to taste the wine, or or how, what exactly did she do as far as the tourism business And when we talked about wine?
2: Yeah, so late in her life, um, and it started by accident, but she was just a very, very smart <laughs> businesswoman, mm-hmm. you know, when she saw an opportunity, um, she went with it. So later in her life, she bought a chateau, which you could still go and see. Um, I mean, the chateau itself isn't open to the public, but the, there is a winery there that is. So it's a chateau called Boursault, and it's in, um, the, it's in the Champagne region. Mm-hmm. And so she bought this chateau um, as a retirement, you know, castle, as one does, <laughs> and yeah. um, and had her own vineyard there. Um, it's a really quite neat vineyard because it's a clo, right? So it's a walled vineyard. And it was really her personal project vineyard um, toward the end of her life. And um, it happened that when the train lines were put in, the train ran just at the foot of the chateau. And that was just happenstance that mm-hmm. that was the case. But what happened was that by then... If you wanted a bottle of champagne, you simply asked for a bottle of the widow, right? Everybody knew that, like, a bottle of champagne was a bottle of the widow because she was that famous. Wow. And So (laughs) when people came to France um, to buy champagne, what they realized was that you could stop at the Chateau and you could pay homage to the Grand Dame. (laughs) And so people started you know, getting off on the train, coming up to the chateau and saying, you know, Madame, can I try your wine? Can I buy it? Can I just meet the great lady? And she very quickly realized, well, you know, if they want to come and buy my wine and, like, come to my doorstep, absolutely, I'll give you a tour. How much can <laughs> That's I awesome. tell you?
1: Yeah. <laughs> so she kind of became a brand unto herself.
2: She really did. She was, I mean, um, not only was she a brand and an icon, you know, the thing that I thought was amazing during the research is she really also is a folk hero still in France. Um, you know, one of the things that I had done... Um, in terms of research, there is at one point, I mean, just drove around and asked the Vigneron, you know, mm-hmm. what they knew about the Widow Clico. And everybody in, in the Champagne can tell you the story of the Widow Clico. I mean, you know, the stories are, of course, legends. And, you know, it's mm-hmm. like asking somebody the story of Robin Hood, you know, that there are variations on the story. But she really lives as this kind of folk hero um, um, culturally, which I thought was just amazing.
1: So she was 21 when she got married. And then six years later, her husband dies. So she's only twenty-seven. Was there any question at that point as to who was going to handle the business, or did she just step she's right into just do it? it?
2: No. Well, I mean, it's um, it, so the business um, that her husband ran. So what had happened is she ends up in an arranged marriage, right, with um, with her husband. And um, they got lucky in that you know, they ended up really quite truly falling in love. And that was in part because he had been trained to be a te- in the textile manufacturing business, which is what her father did as well. And um, he decided he really, really wanted to be a negotiant in wine trade. Um, and he fought with his father and convinced his father to give him a chance at, in addition to working in the textile industry, trying to like start this small family wine business. And um, the rumor was that when he died, he committed suicide in despair over the failure of the business. Now that may or may not be true, but the fact that the rumor existed, right, tells you something about how badly that project went. Huh. But they had fallen in love because he didn't know anything about the wine industry. And normally women would not, of her class, would not have been businesswomen at all. But he invited her to go around and learn about the wine industry with him. And it's this great story of how they, you know, they really, they fall, you know, very madly in love with each other in the process of learning about wine. So then he dies and she goes to her father-in-law and you have to remember that she has no real education. She has no business experience and culturally women from her, I mean, she's upper middle class from that position. They just do not work. They don't run businesses. That's not done. And so she goes to her father-in-law and convinces him to basically gamble the equivalent today of about a million dollars to let her try to build the business that his son couldn't build, that he's already opposed to. And amazingly, he says yes. I mean, he must have seen in her something pretty extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And so she does. He says that she needs to take on a business partner, and the business partner, um, you know, kind of a crash MBA, basically. Um, the business partner is a man named Alexander Forneau, who founded the company that's now Tatingers. And, um, and after four years of doing it together, the business is failing completely. And Forneau says, yeah, I'm out of this. This is just hopeless. I'm not doing this. She goes back to her father-in-law at that point and manages to convince him a second time to gamble another you know, modern-day equivalent of a million bucks to let her run this business. And as a writer, I mean, those are amazing moments, right? Because they're the moments you know that you're in the presence of something really interesting in character, because it doesn't make any sense right. that somebody would do that. Yeah. So four years, another four years go by, and then she's failing again, and she knows that she's on the just the brink of disaster. But she also knows that in her cellar she has this amazing wine. You know, the 1811 vintage was one of the two great vintages of that century, and so she has what she knows is amazing wine. And she knows that pretty soon the Napoleonic wars are going to end and that if she could get her wine so that it was the first French champagne into Russia when the peace was declared, she thinks that she could capture market share. And so she takes this astonishing gamble where she runs the blockades. I mean, she's smuggling the wine effectively, right? That's (laughs) awesome. Mm -hmm. Out of France, too late in the year. I mean, you know, it's too warm really to be sending it. So she's taking a huge risk with the weather. She sends a, um, her, her trusted salesman, a man named Louis Baum, and he goes and he, he does. I mean, they manage none of the wine is ruined. The quality is amazing. And she's exactly right, you know, that she gets it there. And he writes back, Louis Bone lights back, and he's like, you're not going to believe it. I can't even get the wine off the boat. People are lining up to sell it. And then he writes, don't worry, I've doubled the price. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's a good salesman there. <laughs> that was it. And within weeks, I mean, she was, I mean, within weeks, she was known across the continent. The, you know, Dazar said that he wouldn't drink anything other than the widow Clicquot champagne. And, you know, from there, I mean, she, it's a spectacular, like, you know, phenomenal rise to success within a matter of weeks.
0: I think this book is a great gift for somebody who loves wine and champagne because I'm I'm fascinated. I just, I wish we had more time and you could just tell us the whole story, but I want to read it now. So thank you for (laughs) doing all that hard work. Spoiler alert. Yeah, (laughs) and, and drinking so much champagne and having to physically go to champagne to do all of this work, it, for was, this it was amazing. Somebody's got to do it. Yeah. That yeah. was really kind of you to <laughs> I mean, make that <laughs> sacrifice.
1: <laughs> I agree. For the world, it was, it was great. Oh, that sounds—it's awesome. um, the reviews of this book are incredible too. They say it's just as light and effervescent as uh, as champagne as itself, right? <laughs> yeah. So, congratulations on such a successful book. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much, Tilar Mazia, with the book *The Widow Cleekoe*. Great Minds is produced at WGCU Studios on FGCU campus in Fort Myers, Florida. Our producers for online media are Anna Bejarano and Tara Calligan. Technical production is by Mike Connery. Great
0: Minds theme music for Zante is by Colin Mann. And to get in touch, check greatminds.org.